Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. In this episode, I chat with Emily Rice about a really fun organization that she spearheads called Astronomy on Tap. Are you ready? Let's get to it. So who doesn't love a cold adult beverage while discussing things of a cosmic magnitude? You know, science is not always stuffy and geeky. Well, I mean, maybe it's always geeky to some extent, but there are so many fascinating things to talk about that get the imagination stirring and a sense of awe and wonder to overtake you. I first heard about Emily Rice, aka DJ Carly Sagan, through the Astronomy on Tap program that she helps to organize. She's fun and really witty, but you should know that she's an associate professor of astrophysics at Macaulay Honors College at the City University of New York. She's on faculty in the physics PhD program and a resident research associate in the Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History. She has a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics at UCLA and a bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy and German at the University of Pittsburgh. She has the super cool job of studying low mass stars, brown dwarfs, which are also known as failed stars, and direct images of exoplanets. You know, planets that orbit other stars outside of our solar system. And she gives presentations on space and science at places like the famous Hayden Planetarium in New York City. In other words, tonight's guest is really, really, really smart. And I loved chatting with her because she thinks quick on her feet, she's engaging, and she's just downright funny. She coordinates astronomy on tap events at social venues around the world, and she shares astronomy-inspired fashion on the blog Startorialist. I don't know if scientists get any cooler than that. Please join me tonight in welcoming to the podcast, Emily Rice, AKA DJ Carly Sagan. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me on Night Sky Tourist Podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here to talk about astronomy on tap. Awesome, thanks for having me. So start by telling us what is Astronomy on Tap and how did it get started? Uh, That's a very good question. I like to say that it it does what it says on the tin. It's astronomy at bars. Awesome. Um, Yeah, it's just like how can to take two awesome things and put them together and it tends to work out pretty well. And so it, it started kind of very organically, like very naturally. So a friend of mine who was a postdoc at Yale at the time had done a couple outreach events that she called astronomy uncorked because she had them at wine bars and she was very much a wine person. Like that's a, and she had, so she had done a couple of these events. She was in New Haven, Connecticut. And she said, you know, these are really fun, but it's such a small town and everybody drives 
Um, and I was in New York City at the time and we were at an event together in New York City. And she said, I would love to bring this to New York City. And I was like, that sounds like so much fun. I'm too busy to help. <laughs> and then I still helped anyway. And so the, this was, I think our event was in December of 2012. Um, and I did say like, look, I think, you know, the, the wine bar is great, but New York City is much more of a bar scene. So let's to move it to a bar and call it Astronomy on Tap. Um, that was my contribution. But other than that, like she actually organized a lot of it from the beginning, even from New Haven. And we had um, a handful of speakers that were based in New York City. A, a bunch of people came in from New Haven and we found this bar that was a... Um, a kind of a nerd bar to begin with, which was really fun. It had a TARDIS for a bathroom. So it was a Doctor Who kind of steampunk themed <laughs> bar. Um, and it was in Brooklyn and it, they were just like, they were super thrilled to host it. And we had this event in April of 2013. And I was kind of like, okay, we'll see, you know, we'll do one, we'll see how it goes. We ended up having six presenters. And so the, the idea was to have very short, very informal presentations. And so sometimes when you go to a science event. It's called a lecture or a talk or something like that. And I was like, no, this is going to be at a bar. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fast and loose. It's going to be, you know, not something that we have to spend a huge amount of time preparing. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be informal. It's going to be super accessible. And the first event was just so much more fun than we ever expected that by the time that one was finished, we were already planning the next one. And so we did another one in July. Um, and then very quickly, like I kind of took over planning from the beginning, like because uh, Meg was a postdoc. So this Meg Schwamm was the postdoc who organized them when she was at Yale. And since then, she's actually moved to a bunch of different places and done astronomy on taps at all those different places, which tells you like that that's kind of how it spread, because astronomers, by virtue of our careers and our collaborations, move around a lot and have a lot of international collaborators and things like that. And so just from the astronomers kind of traveling around and hearing about it from one another, we spread to a bunch of other cities pretty quickly. The, so the, the first few happened like every few months in New York City. And then by the end, so that was 2013. By the end of 2013, we were starting to organize them monthly in 2014. And then they had already happened back in New Haven again. They had happened in Columbus, Ohio. I presented a poster about Astronomy on Tap at a research conference in January of 2014. And I put a picture of a beer on the poster <laughs> and just that got people's attention. And so from that research conference, I think that's when we had events starting up in Austin, Texas and in Seattle, Washington, something about it just struck a, struck a chord with astronomers. Like we, we like talking about our research um, the astronomy on tap, because it's not just one person on stage talking for an hour or an hour and a half, it's much easier to prepare. You can do kind of thematic events, or you can just kind of have a hodgepodge of everybody talking about what they want. And then we also combined it with music that would, we would play in between. We combined it with trivia games and prizes and, you know, a banter and, and kind of teasing one another and stuff like that. And so there was just a lot of really fun stuff that went along with it, too. Um, and astronomers loved it. And it just has grown from there much more than I ever would have expected. It's been, it's been amazing. I was wondering if people would show more of an interest in something like this, knowing that it was a happy hour event. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the nice things about it is that it's at a bar, like it's somewhere where 
you would go anyway, you know, just to have fun and relax. And so, so instead of it being like a museum or an, a college or a university where you think, okay, I've got to have my thinking cap on, I'm going to be around smart people. You know, there's this intimidation factor among, um, around science and around these kind of educational institutions, like whether or not we realize it and kind of bringing science to the people instead of inviting people to come to science makes it that much more fun. And, and it kind of puts the, the, it evens out the playing field between the audience and the astronomers. Like, cause it's, you know, it's almost more like a comedy set or something like that. And so we almost invite it. Everyone has a little bit of a different character that they have for their events or a different um, kind of atmosphere, but especially in New York city, like we do not take ourselves seriously. And so we very much encourage the astronomer, the audience to, to heckle a little bit and to, um, and even other astronomers you know, it's one thing to learn from your colleagues and you think, OK, I have to impress this person. I need to ask a smart question or something like that. But we would learn from one another at bars because it's like, OK, how does my colleague who's an expert in black holes, which I don't do research on, how do they talk about it? How do they explain that to the public? And then I can turn around and explain it to my family that way or explain it to a class that way. Another indication that we don't take ourselves seriously is I very quickly, for some reason, and then encouraged other people to do it, um, came up with. Uh, like DJ names, MC names for the <laughs> events. And so mine in particular was DJ Carly Sagan. Um, my colleague at uh, who did um, the Astronomy on New York with me once for a long time was um, MC Tycho Brouhaha. <laughs> it was very fun to come up with. Like some of the names that people have come up with are very, very creative. Um, and so we, we you know, encourage people to have this kind of even more entertaining persona that they wouldn't necessarily, you know, you can't necessarily do that at your job or at your department or something like that, but you can have a lot of fun with it at a bar. And so I do think that we reach this audience that, you know, might be intimidated by science or to sure. learn science in a really, um, a really kind of professional place. Sure. What a great way to break down those barriers and make yeah. people have an exciting time. And, you know, it's interesting to me because astronomy is one of the oldest sciences in the world. And yet yeah. it's that one science that still really benefits from citizen science too. So do you, yeah. do you see astronomy on tap as kind of a conduit for encouraging more people to go in their backyards, engage with the night sky? Yeah. In so many different ways, even to engage with research. And so some of the events, depending on where they are, but even in New York city, we've had sidewalk astronomers um, from the, the, our, our local um, association is the AAA, the Amateur Astronomy Association in New York. And so we've had them come and bring telescopes to some of our events. We've had them be speakers at our events. You know, it's super fun because, it, you know, you go at a bar, you go out for a smoke break, you can look through a telescope like while you're having a cigarette <laughs> outside of the bar in Brooklyn. And I've even like I've had people come to events that have ended up studying astronomy, like there were students and switched to their major to be astronomy. Um, I've, or physics in order to do astronomy research. I've heard stories about people learning about astronomy careers through astronomy on tap. And so shifting a career to do something that's, you know, not necessarily exactly research, but like uh, uh, adjacent to research and supportive of astrophysics research. And so kind of any way that we give people an insight into what it means to study the universe, like to, and to explore the universe, either as an amateur or professional. I, I, I still think those are really 
like bad designations to separate those two because there's there's so many things that amateurs do very very well mm-hmm. the professional astronomers do not do at all mm-hmm. and so I, I still think that terminology is bad um, and then you know share the citizen science projects we've had people that have that um, have developed the citizen science projects give presentations on them um, I don't know that we've actually gone as far as to have people do them at the bar but we could totally do that you know half of these things you can do on your phone now. And it is such a really great way to get people one step further from being like interested in it. Like, well, maybe you would, you know, watch a TV show or something like that if it comes up, but to take it one step even closer to the actual science, the actual research that's going on because you have the scientists there giving the presentations. It's really, really wonderful. When you hear people talking after the event is over, either they're coming up to you and they're talking to you, or maybe you're overhearing people talking, that kind of feedback. What are the kind of things that you hear that make you the happiest when it's all over? I love it when people have learned something that they're then going to tell somebody else. Um, Especially in Brooklyn, we had a lot of people who were teachers We had a lot of young adults who were like kind of young professionals who maybe didn't have kids yet. It's so much harder to go to a bar when you have kids, Mm -hmm. Um, but they had cousins or nieces and nephews or, you know, younger friends that they were going to, we would give stuff away all the time, stickers and, and swag from conferences and things like that. And DVDs of the planetarium shows from the museum of natural history, things like that. And so when they said, oh, I can't wait to share this with you know, this other person like that made me realize that we were having even bigger of an impact, you know, because I always in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, we're, you know, we're relying on this drinking culture, we're relying on adults over 21, we're relying on people that have, you know, free time and disposable income, you know, are we missing a large part of the population because of selecting for those things? And the answer is yes, but those people are then going to share even further. And so our sphere of influence is not necessarily limited to the people that are actually there in the bar, which is really nice to know. You know, this age that we're living in where there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation, especially when it comes to science, which just blows my mind. But do you encounter any kind of challenges with that kind of stuff in the area of astronomy? Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Um, The flat earth conspiracy theory is a big one. Um, We actually had... Let me say real quick that one of my episodes, I got to interview Daniel J. Clark, who um, did the documentary Behind the Curve. So people- oh, that's exactly the story that I was going to tell because Astronomy yes. on Tap Los Angeles is actually in that documentary. Oh, okay. Yeah, for like a split second. I haven't actually watched it yet, but a bunch of us, did, like a bunch oh. of the other, well, I call them host stars, a bunch of the other host stars did. Oh, um, I, so I remember that scene in the documentary and I loved it because there were some really us. important comments that were made about that, that I talked with him about in the interview. So yeah, go listen to my interview. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I totally will. Yeah. Watch it, watch it. A, a lot of these conspiracy theory things are so much about trust. Like who do you trust? What sources of information do you trust? Um, and a lot of us are losing trust in institutions, mm-hmm. which I think is not unreasonable right now. Um, But one of the things that Astronomy on Tap does is take the scientists outside of the institutions and say, hey, I'm a person. This is my area of expertise. This is what I've chosen to dedicate my life to. You know, I'm not just doing this to make sure NASA keeps the aliens in the freezer or something like that. Like I'm doing this because I understand enough to think this is really important. And and when people have that expert that they have a personal connection with, I think that can mean a lot and go a really long way in order to 
uh, kind of avoid these really unfortunate um, pseudoscientific conspiracy theories. Yeah, my uncle always believed that the moon landing was a hoax. <laughs> it's so sad. Like, that's, I, I, I feel very sad because on one hand, it's, you know, there is scientific stuff in conspiracy theories. Like they make people feel smart. They make people feel part of a club. They make people feel part of a group. Um, but at the same time, we landed on the moon. Like it's what an amazing thing to believe in that we've done as human beings. And what a sad thing to think is that people would go to even more trouble to fake it. Right. So you recently partnered with Science Near Me to list all of your events. What is Science Near Me? Because I think yeah. people might want to know how to find other things. Yeah, Science Near Me is wonderful. So Science Near Me is um, an NSF-funded project run by um, some people out of the University of Oregon who have done a lot of work with um, citizen science projects. Um, and they wanted to kind of make it even easier for people to do lots of different types of science because there's so many different ways to engage in science, especially with the internet and with in-person events as well. And so the idea is to have this big clearinghouse that's all science-themed events. And there is such a huge variety that it's, it's almost surprising, but it's wonderful. And so on this website, you can go and you can find local events or exhibits or projects to contribute to. It's just a huge variety of things. Um, and it's not just limited to like stuff for kids or, or stuff at a museum or something like that. It really is going to be everything, which is super, yeah. super ambitious. And it's in its very early stages. It really only launched, I think, just over a month ago. Um, but it's really exciting that they picked us to be one of the early partners, I think because our events were so different from a lot of the events that were out there. And so they wanted to kind of try to establish these very broad boundaries for the scientific events that they were including, which is really cool. I like the idea of that because, you know, there's other things in science that fascinate me. I don't really want to spend a lot of time studying it or getting too deep into it. But it'd sure be fun to go to a, an event here or there about some other, you know, field of science. That's super cool. Yeah, it's all about exploring and it's all about, you know, like you can't do something if you don't know it's there. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about the awareness of, of what's out there and what's available. If somebody was interested in starting an astronomy on tap chapter, or do you do chapters? How would they do it? We do. We call them satellites. Okay. We, oh, we are perfect. So, yeah, we are so big on the puns. We call our um, our organizers are called host stars. Our locations, our different locations, are called satellite locations. Although there really isn't much like the universe, there really isn't a central location. Although it started in New York City, and I'm in New York City, and so I kind of call New York City our headquarters. We're we're organized by professional astronomers for the most part. There are some exceptions. Um, we're also what we try to do is keep the satellites independent of institutions in order to lower that barrier to entry. Um, and so, if you're a professional astronomer, then send me an email. <laughs> um, if you're not a professional astronomer, you should find professional astronomers. So that might be a little bit of a barrier. But generally, in you know, in either either an email to me, and then I know somebody in an institution nearby because it's a relatively small community. Um, or even just reaching out to the, the community nearby, the science center, the museum, the observatory, the college. And what we'll do is we'll link in the, um, the potential organizers with the resources that we've developed. Um, and we'll um, help them set up you know, the social media accounts and, and get involved in our, our kind of organizer discussions and things like that. Um, for a little while, when we, we were 
running fast right before like 2019 and the beginning of 20, 2020, we were having one to two satellite, new satellite launches per month, mm. which was really exciting. And then the pandemic happened and kind of ground everything to a halt. Like some mm. of the locations were already streaming online. And so some of them shifted to online relatively easily. Others didn't. It was, and it was kind of a mix. Like it was really hard to predict who was going to be able to continue it and who wasn't. Um, so we've kind of slowed down significantly over the last two years, but it's starting to pick up again. And so I'm, I'm excited that hopefully people will have the resources, the bandwidth and the, just the energy and time to be able to launch new satellites again. Um, and, then, and it's, you know, it's such a fascinating time too, because in that time period that things slowed down, you know, we've got this new activity happening on Mars. We've got this James Webb telescope that's out there that's about to blow our minds. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was a, you know, I hope it, even if it seems like a little bit of a speed bump for live events, I hope it did make us realize the importance of getting things streaming and getting things recorded and getting things archived because we can do and listing the events online and advertising very broadly because we can do so much more. Like I said, you know, getting beyond the audience of the people who just show up at the bar, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on that day, on that night. And I, and I think there is a lot of potential for these events still, like we're still, you know, zero budget, <laughs> <laughs> um, still very grassroots, still very informal, but you know, we've had a lot of events. We've reached a lot of people. There's been hundreds of astronomers involved. And so it's, it's still really exciting what we've been able to do. Where are people going to be able to find you online? Our website is astronomyontap.org. And then yep. do you have any social media feeds? Yep. We have we have Twitter, we have Facebook, and we have Instagram. Um, some of them are more frequently updated than others because they're all me. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have a lot of time to do it. But um, they I try to keep track of, of all the other satellites as well. So the different satellite locations, some of them have their own websites. A lot of them have their own social media accounts. But um, I try to keep all the events at least updated on the main website there. And we finally just recently, because of Science Near Me, actually, we got a calendar function on the website. So instead of just a, a list of events that I was pretty much editing by hand, there's a calendar function. So you can add the events to your own calendar and sort things by date and things like that. And it is picking up again. So we, we had a peak of something also like 40 events per month, like averaging more than wow. one a day, which was just huge for, yeah, for you know, for no budget and everything kind of done very loosey goosey, but it, and it slowed way down to probably less than 10 a month, but we're, we're picking up again, which is really exciting. That's great. Well, people can look um, at my show notes and I will put the links to all of that there so they can easily go and click and come visit you. And Emily, thank you so much for joining me on Night Sky Tours podcast. And I'm really excited for people to find some of these places and get out there and experience it for themselves. Wonderful. Thank you. You know how when you go up into the mountains, you can smell that warm, earthy smell of pine trees, or you go to the beach and you can smell that really pungent, salty air. I live in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona, and on a rainy day, the air just fills up with the smell of creosote plants, which is a smell that you're not going to find anywhere outside of the desert. But have you ever wondered if space has a smell? And it turns out that it does. Although it really depends on where you are in space as to what it's going to smell like. Clearly, you can't just go out into space and take off your space helmet and inhale deeply to see what it smells like. 
But we do have astronauts who've tried to describe what they've smelled in the airlock as they've been depressurized after a spacewalk. Whether they're just smelling the equipment that is helping depressurize or smelling space itself is somewhat unclear. But here's what a few of them have had to say. Astronaut Thomas Jones said, quote, It carries a distinct odor of ozone, a faint acrid smell, and a little like gunpowder, sulfurous. Astronaut Don Pettit described it this way, quote, The best description I can come up with is metallic, a rather pleasant, sweet metallic sensation. It reminded me of my college summers where I labored for many hours with an arc welding torch repairing heavy equipment for a small logging outfit. It reminded me of pleasant, sweet-smelling welding fumes. That is the smell of space. Many astronauts have described the smell of space by comparing it to gunpowder or burnt steak, but they all say that it's a very pleasant smell. In fact, the smell of space is so distinct that three years ago, NASA reached out to a fragrance maker to recreate the odor for their training simulations. They did the smell of the moon, which astronauts compared to the smell of spent gunpowder. But once you leave the solar system, the smells start to change. There are pockets of the universe where molecular clouds can contain a variety of scents, anything from sweet sugar to the rotten egg stench of sulfur. But scientists have discovered something even more exciting than the smell of farts in space. When studying a dust cloud near the center of our galaxy, they were able to isolate chemicals and compare them to things containing those chemicals here on Earth. And what they discovered is that our galactic core smells like raspberries and tastes like rum. This sounds like the start to a great cocktail for an Astronomy on Tap event to me. Don't go away. Our Star Tour is coming up in just a minute. Have you left a review for the Night Sky Tours podcast yet? What are you waiting for? I know that you enjoy the variety of guests who share fascinating topics with us, and you love the star tours and the ancient cultural star stories. So show your love by giving this podcast five stars and leave a written review wherever you listen to your podcasts. When other people see the awesome review that you took the time to write, it lets them know that Night Sky Tourist rocks and is worth their time and attention. It only takes a minute or two, but the impact is priceless. So go to your favorite podcast platform and leave your review today. Let the world know that the Night Sky Tours podcast is out of this world. Tonight's recommendation is a really fun fashion blog called Startorialist. And the reason I'm recommending it tonight is because our guest, Emily Rice, has been really instrumental in this super cool project. And I think you're going to love the super cool stuff that they feature on this fashion blog. And so I've asked Emily Rice to share about Startorialist and how it got started. Startorialist started as an outgrowth of Astronomy on Tap. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, like I think Astronomy on Tap started first. And because there was kind of a small 
group of us that were doing the that and a bunch of other outreach events in New York City. There was another woman and I, her name is Summer Ash, and she was director of outreach for Columbia University Astro at the Has time. Has she been on Star Talk Radio? Yes, she was on Star I thought, Talk. I totally yeah. recognize that name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she's now at uh, NRAO in New Mexico. And so she and I like were, so, so we were doing a bunch of these outreach events together and we were always wearing like space themed clothing oh. because it was, you could kind of buy it. It was all over the place. You could buy it at Macy's, you could buy it at Target, you could buy it at, you know, Kohl's and stuff like that. And so we, we chatted about it. We were like, it's so great that all this stuff is out there. Wouldn't it, it's such a great educational opportunity as well, because some of the things that, you know, you could recognize a Hubble image on like a Nike sweatshirt, for example. Yeah. Um, but we were both living in New York City with not a lot of money, not a lot of like place for storing clothes. And so we said, wouldn't it be great as a blog if we can find these things, you know, take pictures, post about them, describe what's what's realistic about it, what's scientific about it, and then move on instead of having to buy everything ourselves. That's actually how Startorialist started. And then it snowballed from there. Like it just, it, it, I thought it would end. Like I thought the fad would go away. I thought I wouldn't have to buy everything. And it ended up being this thing that has kept on going amazingly enough. That's the, the very, very quick beginning of it. So um, what all kind of products will people find on, on the website there? There is a lot of stuff there. So we kind of, at the beginning, we focused on kind of clothing and jewelry. Um, but we have toys for kids, like the stuffed planets that you can find in observatory or museum gift shops a lot of the time. I've met the people that design them and that sell them. They're, it's like a family-run business and it's wonderful. Um, we have notebooks, we have laptop sleeves, we have um, home decor, so like ornaments and paintings and things like that. There's so much. It's so wonderful. There's one thing I saw there that I loved, and I, I'm trying to remember if it was a scarf or a skirt. And it looked like the parachute from the Mars rover. Yes, it's a skirt. Um, we do have, but we have scarves, but the scarves are a little bit different. But I have a feeling you're thinking of the skirt, mm -hmm. which is amazing. The Dare Mighty Things skirt from the Mars 2020 landing. I love, that is by far our best-selling product. And the story behind it is also so, so wonderful because everything's just happened so naturally. It's been so amazing. So it started off as a blog. And very similar to Astronomy on Tap, we presented it at the research conferences. Like at first, because we thought, oh, this is a great way to communicate astronomy to the public again. And at the research conferences, our colleagues came up to us and said, this is awesome. Where do I buy this stuff? I want to buy it for myself or for gifts for my family or something like that. And so we had to explain to them, like, you know, this is a blog and there's links and yada, yada, yada. They just wanted to buy the stuff. And in the course of, of operating the blog for several years, we kind of gotten to know kind of some of the, the mid-sized designers that had their own Etsy shops or their own websites. And we would even collaborate with them on design sometimes. Um, and so this one woman in particular named Erin Winnick had her company that she started when she was an undergraduate studying mechanical engineering and she made 3D printed jewelry. And the 3D printed jewelry had science themes to it. So she made moon phases and solar eclipses um, and weather symbols and engineering symbols, like all kinds of stuff. And we even did a capsule collection for her like while we were still running the blog, we did um, a Kepler field of view and a Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope mirror. And so she has since graduated. She's um, now full-time as a science communicator for NASA. But she was still like making things for fun and designing things for fun. And so about a month after the Mars landing, she had taken that, that parachute design and made it into a skirt. And she posted it on, on Twitter 
and on TikTok. And very luckily she tagged us on Twitter. And because we were tagged in it, I watched it go viral. And I was like, oh my goodness, Erin, this is amazing. And luckily I was also like, can we put this in our shop? I think we can put this in our shop. And so she and I messaged and emailed back and forth for about an hour and a half. And I got the pattern from her and we had it in the shop. And then overnight, it just took off. It was so amazing. Like it's for her to to entrust us with that design for us to know her and like have that relationship to begin with. It was such a nice thing to have happened. It was really, really wonderful. Um, And we have so many designs that, so not only are we like finding things, wholesaling them or commissioning them or something like that. um, A lot of the times we encourage um, and support other scientists to kind of follow their creative passions and make things for us. Where will listeners find Startorialist online? We are at startorialist.com and we're also on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. And on TikTok, we're very newly on TikTok, but I've only posted a couple of things so far. Fine. I think if you're going to have that kind of fun stuff, yeah, TikTok (laughs) needs to be the place to be. Thank you, Emily. I encourage everybody to go to the website and get some fun gear. It's time for our tour across the night sky. The star tour this week is geared toward a viewing time right after sunset. So plan a night when that timing works for you. Gather everyone in your house and I'll meet you outside under the stars. The reason I want you to do your stargazing so early in the evening tonight is because we have only one naked eye planet visible right now. It's the planet Mercury. It doesn't rise very high in the sky and it doesn't stick around for very long after sunset. You'll want to find a location where you can get a really good view of the western horizon right about where the sun went down. You won't see Mercury right away because the sky does have to grow a little bit darker for it to stand out. And you should see it sometime just before 8 o'clock. So what is it that you're looking for? It's going to be fairly tiny, but it's going to be exceptionally bright. And you'll see it before you see any stars in that direction. And then it's going to drop below the horizon pretty fast. Because Mercury is so close to the sun, we never get to see it rise far above the horizon. So as it swings around to the left side of the sun, as it's doing right now, we can see it in the evening sky as soon as the sun's glare gets out of the way for us. And then as Mercury swings around farther, it gets to its farthest distance from the sun from our viewpoint which puts it at its highest point in the sky. Then it looks like it circles back and reverses. It will then pass in front of the sun, which means we're not gonna be able to see it. And then it's gonna reappear on the right side of the sun. And that means that we'll only see it in the early pre-dawn hours right before sunup. Each morning it will rise higher and higher until it reaches its furthest point from the sun from our viewpoint again, and then reverses course again. This seeming appearance of moving backward is referred to as retrograde. And you've probably heard songs, poems, and other such things that talk about Mercury being in retrograde. There's a lot of superstition and folklore connected to this cosmic event. According to almanac.com, those who practice astrology traditionally view these times as times associated with confusion, delay, and frustration. Think of undelivered love letters, email blunders, and disrupted travel plans. And the next retrograde is going to be coming on May 10th. As you probably know, Mercury is the smallest planet in our solar system, 
It has no moons, and it takes about 88 days to make one complete trip around the sun. It's named after the Roman goddess Mercurius, or Mercury, who is the god of commerce, the messenger of the gods, and the mediator between gods and mortals. And he's the same as the Greek god Hermes. If you look at Mercury through a telescope, it displays phases just like Venus and our own moon. We've sent two spacecraft to this tiny world. The Mariner 10 flew by in 1974 and 1975, and then the Messenger spacecraft launched in 2004 orbited the planet over 4,000 times in just four years. It eventually ran out of fuel and it crashed into the planet in 2015. And we do have another spacecraft scheduled to arrive at Mercury in the year 2025 to do a comprehensive study. Since you're stargazing early tonight, it's going to take some time for the stars to start showing up. You might be able to see Sirius already, and it's starting to inch its way toward the southwestern sky. It's the brightest object in the night sky after the moon right now. To the north and west of Sirius and above the western horizon is the magnificent Orion. And to the east of that are the twins, Gemini. Cancer is farther east from Gemini, but it's pretty unlikely that you can see it at this time of the evening. Its stars are so dim that they are even difficult to see at night under light-polluted skies. So keep going east from there, and you're going to spot the huge constellation of Leo, the lion. Can you spot the stars that look like a sickle or a backwards question mark? That's the head of Leo. This constellation includes the bright star of Regulus that makes up the dot at the bottom of the question mark. To the east of that, you might be able to spot Virgo popping up over the eastern horizon. Most of her stars are dim, so it's better to look for her when she's higher in the sky and the sky is much darker. She has one bright star called Spica. And in an upcoming episode, I'm gonna share a secret with you for finding Spica using the Big Dipper. Be sure to mark your calendar for the overnight hours of April 22nd to 23rd to catch a glimpse of the Lyrids meteor shower. You could see as many as 20 shooting stars per hour for this one, but you need to get in a good dark location. And the full pink moon will be on display on April 16th. No, it's not going to be pink, but it will be beautiful. So take some time that night to enjoy its magnificence. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you to Emily Rice, a.k.a. DJ Carly Sagan, for joining us to talk about astronomy on tap and for sharing with us about her awesome astronomy-related fashion on Star Torialist. Check out our show notes or visit nightskytours.com slash 38 for links to both of those websites. We'll see you here again in two weeks. And until then... Keep looking up.